0: Defining myself as opposed to being defined by others is one of the most difficult challenges I face. Carol Mosley Braun. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway.
1: And I'm independent journalist Georgia Fort. So the quote this morning really has
0: me in a place of, of... Looking at the events, there's a lot of things that are happening right now. So I want to kick it to you, Miss Georgia, to to get us caught up on some of the things you're covering because there's a lot, and there's a lot that's happening in one of the most formative times, and that is our schools. So what are some of the things that you're covering this week? Um, you know, as as we continue to try to to deal with defining ourselves in the midst of being defined by these moments.
1: Well, there was a video that uh, circulated earlier this week of a or earlier last week of a white female student using the N-word and telling a black student that she should go and kill herself. And I, I remember actually seeing this video days before it went viral and I personally was triggered. In, in seeing this footage and uh, other people were triggered as well. But I think the most triggering thing for the students who attend Prior Lake High School was the fact that didn't seem... As though much was going to happen to that student. In fact, we heard uh, accusations that there were certain students who stood up for the white student. There were certain teachers who stood up for the white student. And, uh, you know, the black and brown youth at that school um, are, are hurt and they don't feel safe. The young lady uh, who was told to go kill herself shared that she did wanna go kill herself after this happened. And so there was a a protest that happened. And then actually uh, Monday evening, there is a school board meeting where a lot of these uh, youth and their parents plan to go and and ask the uh, school board to back them in standing up against racism in the school and and making an example that this type of behavior will not be tolerated, and so we've heard demands for that student to be ex- expelled. We've heard demands for the teacher uh, who stood up for her to resign or be fired, and we've heard the same demands for the principal of Prior Lake.
0: You know this. This there's a couple of things that this story brings up because you know I spent 15 years engaging in. In, in in education in the western in, in the minneapolis and the surrounding suburbs in the west metro and one of the things that we would routinely uncover not just uncover but but that are routine is is this this um this belief that not my district not my school but we uh, students of color in school district after school district have reported this type of bullying in particular and and, and i want to call it out and surface it because it's one that often happens quietly it's not the one that's going to get have a teacher be able to say and point and say, Oh, you did something. It's intentionally done covertly and quietly, in this case, not so quiet. I get that. But um, it's like this this poking over time. And then when you stand to defend yourself in whatever ways that you can figure out because adults aren't stepping in, you are the one that becomes blamed for being violent or being aggressive and all of that. And all of a sudden everybody around you gets amnesia. And this has a very s- similar Um, a a, a feel to it. And it's not uncommon for folks who are walking around saying this doesn't happen in our district. This is this. I hope this, this can be one of many wake up calls that this not only is present in many of our school districts, but you may not hear it because you may, you you may have not been willing to listen to it in the past. And so nobody's coming to talk to you about it, but the stories are there and the patterns have been there for a while. And so, you know, this, 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 this hits very close to home very, very close to home.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, there is something also that's so inspiring, you know, to see our youth stand up and say, we're not going to take this anymore. We know that this has been happening in this school. Uh, There's been accusations of this happening in the school up to 10 years ago with little Mm -hmm. um, to no uh, response or consequence for people who behave in a way that's not just Classified as bullying, but Mm -hmm. you know, acts of hatred. And so to see the youth say, we are not going to allow this to happen anymore. Um, This is the, this is our future. And so, I mean, we have been affected by racism our entire lives. And I think we've seen, especially here in the Twin Cities area, thousands of people standing up, trying to do what they can to eradicate racism, to end racism, to, you know, stop the, or to, to help, um, with the disparities, you know, all of this work around, uh, issues that have stemmed from racism and to, to see the next generation say that, that they want to end it, you know, is just something so inspiring about that, especially as we're approaching, um, the Kimberly Potter trial.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so, so tell us about that. There's been some developments there too, right?
1: Absolutely. Judge Regina Chu has approved a request for cameras to be allowed in the courtroom. And so as it stands today, uh, the trial is supposed to be live streamed. This after uh, weeks of going back and forth. Originally, she had denied the request by media to have cameras in the courtroom. Um, They were motioning for cameras to be in the courtroom because of COVID-19. As you could imagine, if you have 20 journalists in there trying to report uh, that poses, you know, a higher risk for COVID-19 to, you know, for there to be an outbreak. And so media was requesting on that basis that maybe only one person goes in with cameras and then everybody else can just use that one feed. Um, But also the media was also petitioning on the basis of public interest. And so that original request was declined back in August and a coalition of both local and national media outlets continued to file motions on October 29th. There was a motion that was filed that said she had approved the order, but It wasn't signed. And so it wasn't actually until, Anthony, protesters went to the judge's home and demanded that there be cameras in the courtroom. Uh, Two days later is when we actually saw that motion approved.
0: In tying to what you said about the young folks at at Prior Lake, we can take the stand. I mean, this... We're seeing that that folks are no longer willing to take things as they were, and are doing things like even going outside to protest at, at the homes to make sure um, that that there's some kind of that something gets done. Right? I think I think the days of folks being willing to just allow things to go as they are, because we haven't addressed certain things, is is, is going away, um, and that's very fascinating. I want to point out as well, though, that in all the protests that you just described. Um, you know, this ain't January sixth. Cause cause I've seen folks try to make the link between what happened at the at the terroristic assault at the Capitol and try to lump that in with what's happening here. This is putting pressure on decision makers to do what they need to do. Um, you know, you know, you know, this is not destroying and seizing and committing treason at the at the Capitol. Because I keep running into as we get into these conversations, folks taking it down that, that direction. And so um these developments of being able to actually see what's happening and having visibility here, I think is a is a powerful uh development in in being able to not only see and be transparent, but also to be able to to have folks understand that they need to do their jobs. Well, because people are watching. I think that's a very positive, positive
2: step.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. And we will see uh, what happens. The trial is anticipated to begin November 30th. At least that's when jury selection will begin. And uh, there have already been a few actions, um, you know, surrounding the developments of this trial And uh, we are anticipating that community is going to be in the streets responding to what's happening in, in the courtroom. So we'll continue to follow it. I know that there was also a press conference outside of the Brooklyn Center Police Department where it appeared as though a permanent fence had been installed. This was criticized by the family of Dante Wright, as well as the family of Kobe Heisler, who was also fatally shot by Brooklyn Center Police Department. And this was criticized because there was not a line item at the Brooklyn Center City Council meeting requesting approval for funds to be used in this way. And so residents were asking where did the money come from to fund this permanent fence Mm -hmm. at the Brooklyn center police department. There were also criticisms that were uh, surrounding the lack of implementation of the police reform bill that had been passed after Dante Wright was killed. You may remember city council agreed and passed the Dante Wright and Kobe Heisler Act, which now has actually been implemented in Evanston, Illinois. Illinois, that's right. But despite the fact that it's been passed in Brooklyn Center, and I think now we're at 180 days, it still hasn't been implemented. In fact, the Brooklyn Center police chief has been accused of criticizing it. And so there's concerns that, yes, it's passed, but it hasn't been implemented, And so was it performative? Is there a plan to fund it and roll it out? I have reached out to Mayor Elliott to get his comment on this issue. However, I have not heard back from him as of yet.
0: You know, I I think <laughs> we're going to have to accept performative because in 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 many ways, almost all the acts that we do are performative in some particular way. The question becomes performative towards what purpose? And 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 that that is is something that I think <laughs> deserves some talking about. Um, there's a professor um, out of United Theological Seminary named Gary Green who teaches a lot around performative. Um, performative acts of racism, performative acts of anti-racism, and 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 what are the implications of their knowing that? In a lot of ways, we are called to perform, whether we realize it or not. How many times have you picked up a phone and code-switched <laughs> um, without even realizing that you're doing it? So, um, I'm, I, I the, your attention to these these stories, I think, are really helps to put into context what has and what has not happened. Um, in order to to help folks understand where. Um, there are still things to be able to be done in community. It 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 doesn't it's not lost on me that at the same time as this court case is coming in, we also have the Rittenhouse case going on now, um, where we we saw the tears of Kyle Rittenhouse who had taken the stand. This Kyle Rittenhouse was the uh the um the Did vigilante. we see, did
1: we see tears
0: or did we well, <laughs> I would, that's what it got me to the performative nature piece, right? Because yeah. we perform in many different ways. Um there's a one, there's a meme out there that takes that takes tears, performative tears, <laughs> from many different situations and kind of puts them together and is trying to have a conversation about the ways in which we perform. Um, you know, it, uh, and and the reason I bring that up is that the Rittenhouse case itself has a lot of implications. This is a a, a, a 16-year-old. Who got a gun? Had his mom take him to a place that he had no business meeting in the first place. Drove him in with this, with a weapon, um, to to deliver vigilante uh, justice. I know that's what's on trial now, and folks are gonna be like, "Well, he hasn't been convicted yet." This is what I saw, okay? And then um, ends up shooting several folks. It um, is now on trial, defending and, and giving the case of self-defense, um, which has huge implications because. Um, uh, a, a conviction, or, or assuming an acquittal in this case, um, then raises very interesting questions about what vigilanteism is, and and what is it going to have for other demonstrations? Which we know, based you know, based on what you've already put forward in front of erecting that fence, we know there are going to be f- further confrontations. Having that with this now, this this court case as, as as an example of what will be allowed or what won't be allowed matters a lot. And it's something that we're gonna to have to really pay attention to. Um, so I, I, I love that you put your coverage out there in ways that really helps us understand some of the implications about what has and has not been done performatively or otherwise. Um, and so I wanna commend you on that, um, on, on those on those stories. Um, I'm curious about, as you cover all of these and getting ready for the trial that is to come, we still have also the trials of the other officers. Um, and so do you think that there's going to be a similar response and attention to to this coming case in November, um, as there as there was uh, not just with George Floyd, but do you think we're going to be returning to a state of 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 you know folks street even getting to martial law?
1: Well, there definitely you know has been some reports that the National Guard uh, was going to be activated. I haven't been able to confirm that. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, they uh, probably have some contingency, right? Where if, if things are, if there's not a lot of people out in the streets, we we won't see military response. If you start to see sizable crowds, uh, or I would even say if the verdict is not guilty, I am guessing that Operation Safety Net <laughs> did not, disband is still probably very much a thing you know and uh it's probably a good time uh for someone like myself as a journalist to circle back with that initiative and see you know where they're at um because uh, we haven't heard anything, we we leading up to the Derek Chauvin trial. If you remember, there were uh, strategic communications that were happening from the Operation Safety Net account that detailed how many military uh, men had been activated. Um, what different agencies were going to be working together, what phase one looked like, what phase two looked like. And they ended up going into phase four, which was, you know, like heightened security um, after Dante Wright was fatally shot, which was something they weren't intending to do until it was the day before the verdict. Mm -hmm. And so... We'll have to see. It's definitely something that I've been keeping um my eye out for. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's it's a good time to reach out and, and just start asking those questions. What is the plan? What are you guys planning to do? How are you planning to respond? What agencies are going to be involved? Um, because right now we haven't heard anything.
0: That's that's powerful. And for those who who um, maybe listening that 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 weren't necessarily uh, following some of those on the ground pieces. Operation Safety Safety Net, Georgia. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was a joint a joint effort between the governor, various police agencies, the commission, the the public safety commission, commissioner's office of the state of Minnesota, the National Guard um, that um, put millions of dollars in place uh, as a quote big air quotes response to the planned and or presumed unrest that would be coming from the George Floyd. Um, uh, murder, and the coming tr- and the trial, but more importantly, the trial of Derek Chauvin. Correct. So, so there's a lot happening, and there's a lot on the ground, and in people in community are experiencing these things. And so, um, it, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. You know, listening to to and in in covering all of these different things can leave us kind of in a sense of. Man, there's a whole lot of stuff happening to our community, but there are our spaces and in, 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 in Georgia's coverage as an independent journalist has routinely told the stories of things we are doing in community for ourselves. So our guest today is one of those examples of, of, of somebody who's working on issues and challenges in our community, for our community, by our community, um, in case you have this idea that somehow we don't define for ourselves. And so our guest today is one of those folks who helps us define for ourselves um, how we can take care of our community. So brother William, if you could come on and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and join us in this conversation as we think about how we get these narratives and how we get these stories front and center across all of the places that we work.
2: My name is William Moore. I'm a racial and health equity administrator for Ramsey County. Uh, I've been with the county for about five years. I'm also a doula and lactation educator, one of the first men in the history of the state to be um, a licensed doula and lactation educator. Um, love the work that I do. Uh, I went to college at Concordia University, um, major in history, poli sci, um, played football, ran track. Um, and I consider myself as somebody who, I mean, I, I'm a transplant, I'm not from here. But St. Paul has been my community uh, since I decided to come here and go to college. Um, And it has been so far since I've gotten out of college, my life's work to improve uh, uh, the living conditions in St. Paul for people who look like me. Um, As I think back about my career path and all the work that I've done since graduating college, it's all been about about helping people and and really building the community that I live in. in uh, a healthy and responsible way, um, and that's what I can. It's, it's 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 what I strive to do. To be quite honest with you, and to be quite honest with you, I can't I can't imagine myself doing anything else, um, because no matter how much success that I might give, uh, you know how much no matter how much success that I might get or receive as an individual, um, what is it what you know what is that really if my friends and my family are suffering. Yeah, if my community is suffering at the same time, right? Uh, and so it's, as I said, it's been my life work to really address that and try to, you know, close down those disparities and offer, <clears throat> create and offer those same opportunities that I was afforded uh, as a young man.
1: Well, I think it's really fascinating that as a Black man, you have. Prioritized improving birthing outcomes for Black women, and uh, I, I feel like I I know very well the disparities that exist in you know the birthing industry. Um, w- when you look at the amount of Black women who are dying while giving birth, it is is terrifying. It, it is uh, to be Black and to be pregnant. You know, you really have to be. Um, strategic and and wise about who you surround yourself with when you are giving birth. And so we're seeing more and more people in the village lean on doulas um, and lean on midwives and, and looking at alternative birthing solutions. Can you talk about what inspired you, uh, especially, I, I guess I'm really interested in from just the vantage point of you being a black man, what inspired you to step into this space, which is usually predominantly. Um, led by women.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> let me be straight up, you know, straightforward and up front. If you had asked me four to five years ago what a dual lactation educator was, the answer would have been either I don't know or would have been very, very rudimentary knowledge. Um, so I cannot tell you that four to five years ago, I saw myself doing what I'm doing right now. However, it was through my work uh, in Ramsey County Public Health, working with the Birth Equity Community Council, essentially a group that meets every other month uh, of community members, public health nurses, professionals from all walks of life. We'll get together uh, and really talk about the the birth disparities uh, and issues, the, the, the maternal uh, and child health disparities that, um, you know, black and brown women face here in Ramsey County in different ways in which we, different and creative ways in which we can uh, mitigate those. And during one of these listing sessions or during one of these uh, meetings, it was really expressed by a lot of the, you know, the women in the community that there really aren't any parenting resources out there for men. Uh, There's uh, plenty of resources out there for women, even the so-called family resources that are out there uh, are really geared towards uh, uh, women and children. Nothing uh, uh, um, geared towards men. Men are. It's funny because I always say that in a world that is essentially male dominated, it was it was the, the 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 idea of a public health nurse named Ms. Tamiko, Ross, Ms. Tamiko Ralston that you know one way in which we could do that provide these uh, these these resources out for our fathers and the men in the community while also trying to mitigate the disparities in the maternal death rate for our mothers and the infant mortality rate for our little ones, why don't we train men to become doulas and lactation educators, uh, which to be quite honest was a pretty revolutionary thought at the time. Um, <clears throat> and then the, everybody was kind of in the, after, you after know, brood, you know, brooding over it for people uh, for a little bit, everybody kind of jumped on the board with it. And then folks are like, well, Who are we going to find? Where are we going to go about finding, you know, and recruiting, recruiting men to even want to take part in that? Anybody who knows me will tell you I am that person. If there is something totally outside the box. You know that nobody else will try. If, you know, if you got a fork in the road, the person who's going to go straight you know, the person is willing to try or do anything that nobody else is willing to do. I'm usually that person. So to be quite honest with you, i volunteered to do it really not even knowing what it was. I just knew, I just knew of it as an alternative way and a different way for me to be able to help my community. That's really all I cared about, to be completely honest with you. It's a different way to help my community. I'm in, count me in. However, what happened is, as I you know, embarked on my training and I started to learn the history of midwifery and birth work in black and brown communities and how, uh, as it has a stereotype as work, uh, quote unquote, women's work, and but not just women's work, but something that's typically done uh, in upper middle class or wealthy white uh, families, that this is work that we've been doing since before we came here from the continent. Logically speaking, you would have to ask yourself that the answers have been in front of us our whole lives, right? We, as individuals, we all logically know there hasn't been hospitals and doctors and nurses, you know, you know, forever. We have, we've had doulas and midwives, either by that name or any other name, in our different tribes and in our different different communities since the beginning of time. And we did that when we got here. Matter of fact, the only reason when we were here and enslaved that that white doctors even helped uh if they did you know help them at all but even helped uh enslaved black women give birth is because they were seen as property they're an investment right you want to make sure that your investment lives through this process you want to make sure that your property doesn't lose value during this process and through learning that history and then also learning about the the history of of birth work uh before we you know we got here uh, from the continent after we got here how uh, we fought to maintain these practices even after um uh, you know mainstream healthcare systems tried to uh you know put about you know insidious restrictions prohibiting black and brown women or birth workers from helping out in black communities like for instance i'll give you an example when it came time to uh institutionalize it. And when they wanted to, I believe happened in the state of Mississippi, they were trying to, the, the, the health department there, the healthcare system, they were trying to figure out why they had such a, a high infant mortality rate. They looked to blaming birth workers in the black and brown community because let's just be honest, that's the easy thing to do. And that's what's Black folks get the blame for everything, you know, when when something doesn't go right in this country. Anytime a Democrat doesn't win, right, it's where are the young folks? Where are the black folks? You know, that's the reason we didn't win. We get the blame pretty much for everything. And so what they sought to do is, okay, we are going to institutionalize this practice. So now we're going to put forth and we're going to make these 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 women who have been doing this work again. Remember, for eons, who have been practicing and passing down this heritage and this skill. Uh, from generation to generation we're going to have to make we're going to make you take written tests to prove your knowledge and your skill of bringing uh, a, a babies into this world the reason i say that's insidious is because it was illegal for these women to read and write <laughs> and now you want to give them a written test to prove that they can do something that they've already been doing and to show you how backwards it was anytime during this period this is i believe the 30s and the 40s during this period anytime you know white doctors in a hospital had issues with uh, difficult births right where do you think that who do you think they sought after and who do you think they went to to help them with these difficult births the same women that they tried to make it illegal to do the work and so and so learning about all of this it it, it this this practice turned into turned went from this is just a cool innovative way for me to help my community to now this is a cultural responsibility for me. Now I have a swelling and a sense of pride about it. This is something that I need to do because this is something that I don't think enough people in my community know about. Um, and I and to, make, and, to, and to hear all these individual stories about different you know, uh, uh, Black birth workers throughout the years, throughout the ages, it became this mantle that I just felt proud to carry. I've been like, I want to make sure people know about this. I wanna make sure people this this practice is carried on and pushed forward and we shout about it from the mountaintop so people know this isn't just something uh 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 for for wealthy or middle class white women in their communities. This is something for 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 our community, especially seeing as how 243% of black women die as a, a die from childbirth related uh causes compared to white women. That's when I look at a number that high, I always tell people that's medical malpractice to me, because when you look at the bodies of black women and compared to white women, what's different about it other than than pigmentation? Right. So why? So why are so so if they're the same, why are black women dying at such a high rate? It's because they're neglected by a health care system. Uh, and so and, and and the only thing to 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 help, you know, make improve that is by dismantling institutional structural racism which will take forever to do because we know how when you look at the argument over critical race theory now we know how that battle is going right so the other only option that we have is to have more people like us in those those delivery rooms uh uh uh, sitting beside our, our our mothers and our fathers Directly uh, um, talking, speaking directly with those direct service providers and those healthcare providers, making sure that we're advocating for our mothers and fathers out there to make sure that they're being heard and listened to and taken care of the way that they should be. Brother
0: Moore, you just you just dropped jewels <laughs> first and foremost, and, and and I think it's it's funny how the universe works because when the the doula dads um, uh, program that that it came out, we I remember sitting there with my friends. Um, and we were talking about, man, do we have the time to do this? And my friend Chris actually went through, I don't know if it was a class or it was it was a program. Chris um, Chris Love. So he says, you got jokes and what's up? I know. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> brother Chris, I love him, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, excellent, excellent brother myself. But he would be bringing this data back to us and 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 like bowling us over with all these things that, um, and he was the first to really bring this idea that, you know, again, this is another area where our own cultural knowledge that we've been with and and, and cultivated for so many years is being denied Has been removed and denied from us and then re given to us in a way that doesn't match the brilliance. Yeah, it's been co opted and
2: repackaged to to us and something to show that it's something that's foreign to us. If you think about it, that's the thing about white supremacy, though, right? Or Mm -hmm. country music. People look at that as an inherently white uh, 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 American thing. The name of the self, Cowboys, speaks of the first Cowboys were black. That's why they're called Mm -hmm. boys. The white, white men who worked with, horses and worked on ranches were called cowhands. We were called the boys, cowboys, <laughs> country music. We, we that, that is our stuff, but it's been re-banded, mm-hmm. rebranded and repackaged and, and put back out and marketed in a way in which it looks foreign to us. And the thing about white supremacy is it's very traumatizing, right? And the thing about, I always say about trauma, which a lot of people don't understand, if you traumatize someone enough, mm-hmm. you no longer have to traumatize them. They'll traumatize themselves. And then they'll traumatize themselves so much and pass that trauma down from generation to generation. The trauma no longer looks like trauma. It looks like culture. Mm-hmm. That's deep. You have no desire to change it because your culture is something that you're supposed to be proud of and hold on to. Right.
1: Yeah. You, you know, I think the, the thing that makes me feel inspired by this conversation is the sentiment that, you know, we have everything that we need within our community Mm -hmm. and we don't have to go outside of our community to find solutions or resources. And so this idea of doula dads, right, to uh, be a solution for the increase um, of black women who are dying while giving birth. uh, To me, it's it's such a a beautiful uh, way for our community to work together because Uh, naturally, right, um, families who are going in to deliver babies, if a father is equipped with that knowledge and how to advocate for his partner, for his wife or for his girlfriend, then uh, he he can recognize when things are starting to take a turn uh, in, in the same way that a doula would because now he's certified as well, right? Exactly. And so uh, even in situations where maybe uh, women don't have the support of the child's father, you know, men can step in for their sisters, they can mm-hmm. step in exactly. for their nieces, exactly. they can step in for their cousins. Exactly. And so it just for me, it makes me feel so encouraged and, and hopeful as a woman as a mother, to know that our men are showing up for the women in our community in this way.
2: Right. And the, one of the things that I really love about it, too, is, is, as you said, it reintroduces men back into this birth space. Right. But then we also get down to the root of it. Why are men not involved in the birth space to begin with? Right. So there's different so there's, there's different ways to look at this. Um, for instance, I've heard people plenty of times go, you're a doula in that women's work. I'm going to a doula is an advocate. It, 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 it's, around the t- it's family work. Right. And I'm like, yeah. And I said, it's everybody's responsibility to take care of the family. Correct. I'm like, yeah. So then why is it women's work? All right. And then we got to think about the, the messages and messaging that we're given to men, boys and fathers out in our community. For instance, it ain't always from the outside. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes from within. Sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. it comes from my own friends and family. Yeah. So, for instance, yeah. when, a, when a young brother is excited that him and his uh, his partner are about to have a baby, it's like, man, I'm so happy. You know, we're pregnant. We're about to have a baby. And then you hear somebody shut him down I'm like, you ain't doing nothing. Your back ain't hurting. Your feet ain't mm-hmm. swelling. You ain't having morning sickness. You're telling him subconsciously and subconsciously that his only responsibilities for that ch- for that child is helping to create that baby and then pay for and maybe discipline that baby after that baby is born. But then all of a sudden, after all of that messaging, being bombarded with that messaging, we expect them to innately jump in hands and feet first after the baby's here, and we get fat and frustrated when they when they don't. We have to realize, even though logically we know that it takes more than financial support to help take care of a, a, a child, we need to we need to stop delivering the message into our fathers that that is all that they're good for. And when I'm training and, and consulting with direct service providers, I always tell them, always address the family as a whole, inquire about the father. Always assume that there is a father there unless and, 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 and try to include a father, unless you're directed and told otherwise. A lot of people don't even know what single parenting is. And this is what I mean by that. I've had to I've had no. to have a conversation with a young lady about this before, too. She goes, Well, I'm a single mom and I do this and I do that. And I was like, oh, okay. So dad isn't around. <clears throat> well, he's around. He picks the kids or he takes them on the weekends, stuff like that. I was like, oh, well, maybe he does. I was like, oh, so does he not you know, help you or provide, you know, with you financially? Nope. He gives me money whenever I need it. I said, well, you ain't a single parent. You just don't got no man. You co-parenting. That's the difference. You co-parenting. Hmm. You're not a single parent. You're just not in a relationship. And so we, we don't really, and, and the same goes for the other way around too, for fathers too. I correct fathers on that too. The mother is contributing, you're not single parenting, you co parenting. But when we misuse terms like single parent, when the other parent is there providing, because what we're doing when we say something like that is we're invalidating any of the efforts or work that the other parent is putting into this process. And we don't realize that. We don't take note of that. And so we have to be conscious of that. And we do things like that all the time. And then we wonder why there's animosity there amongst some of these relationships. That, and when we well, after we ask questions, like, well, I don't get it. There shouldn't be any animosity there. there. should that Everything seems to be great on the surface when we dig deep down and we ask questions. There doesn't necessarily seem to be anything else there. Why, they, why is there animosity? I see that we create that by the language we use sometimes when we're working with our families. This is this is
0: a powerful because I think it's another example of that repackaging that comes to us too. Um, you know, even even that data, um, you know, our our, our whole narrative around the absent black father is rooted in in this this uh single-focused view of what what quote unquote the household means and so one one study says um you know doesn't take into account the fact that, that that folks may not be married in a household situation and all of a sudden a statistic becomes to write a story when when actual full oh, data yeah. starts so to tell
2: us very differently that parent involvement is high i also like to address that too because what we see oftentimes mm-hmm. is when uh data is is, is misrepresented it turns into a self fulfilling prophecy too, because there was, there is this narrative out mm-hmm. there that's that even parroted amongst our own people in our own community that there's an absentee, there's an absent black father, that the fathers aren't there. We do have some young men out there who are not handling their business and not doing their thing. But when you actually look at the study that, but I believe you're referring to, when you actually peel, you know, parse apart, the, you know, peel apart the data,
1: mm-hmm. what
2: the data actually says is black men are actually more involved in the day-to-day lives of their children than one of any the highest other demographic and yep. men that exist. We're just more apt to not be married to our to, to our partners, to 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 the mother of our children. Mm-hmm. And that that study also doesn't pull into the, pull into uh pull into the realm or pull into the, the conversation. Why are the fathers usually not married to their partners? Because we have systems and things set up you know, like our child support systems, uh, things like that, that incentivize not having fathers in the home, right? And so we don't like to bring those type of things in. We like to come with these incomplete narratives and and data that misrepresents the entire story in the picture. And then you create this narrative that Black fathers aren't there. And then they hear it so much that you hear some of our very own women saying that in the community. And what that does, again, not absolving what some of our young brothers do because it's wrong. But as my grandmother would always say, just because you don't like it, just because it ain't good, don't mean it ain't true. You get a lot of you got like, you get a lot of young brothers who get tired of hearing that, who get in who feel invalidated because you say I'm not doing nothing. You say that you calling you calling yourself a single parent. I'm here, I'm doing things too. Uh 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 you said I could be doing you calling me a bum, you call me this, that, another and then you get brothers who are just like well if you so much you so you, if you're better off you so much better without me then I'll step up out of the picture. It doesn't make it right but it's the, it's the fact of the matter is that's how some young brothers feel and when they are when some of these young cats already come in with no confidence in themselves at all that's all that's needed sometimes to push them over the edge. again, don't make it right doesn't make it okay but it's just giving context that some of these brothers aren't just leaving and stepping out of the realm for no reason. <laughs> there are things behind it, and what I,
0: I I love about what you just did is you just you did what I, what I what I push and hope folks will do so much more is you just had a full a fuller conversation. One of the things that we 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 tend to do is to have these myopic one to one moments and not do what we have done historically, and that is to be able to have full knowledge based, nuanced, complex conversations and not be scared or shy away from them and move into the space of taking one data point. And having that write a complete narrative. I loved, I loved what you what you what you did when you added that to the to the mix. The the other w- wondering that I have for you, um, you know, as as you get young brothers excited, as you get older brothers excited, my friend Chris saying, stop talking about going through uh the course, the coursework and, and helping to shift that narrative. Um, but also. Um, the inclusion of you know or the definition of 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 a father and then if you expand that out um the the more expanded research to try to do some, some 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 um some 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 reconciling of that earlier study uh came out and asked a different question in addition to it and that is um about a father figure so going beyond just the 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 individual uh who who is who's is the dad but but asking the question Do you have a male figure in your life is a very different question. And we see the rates of participation skyrocket even above that initial inclusion of the data.
2: Exactly. I remember actually being in a a, a group session with a group of men um, and having this conversation just like this. Uh, And it was, you know, it was a couple of young cats. And I was kind of talking about uh, really who kind of fell into that narrative as well, you know, that a lot of times, you know, Black fathers aren't there. Some of them express how their dads weren't there and that, you know, uh, some of them were worried about doing the same. And I said, but you've had a father figure in the picture. You've had a male figure uh, who, who has contributed, it, it, it contributed in some way to help you be who you are. One of them talked about LeBron. It's like, yeah, he didn't grow up with a dad. His dad was never there. With I was like, yeah, you're right. I said, but he talks often about his basketball coach. House basketball coach was a positive figure and helped rein him in, deliver life lessons to him and, and guide him along his way. And I said, I want you all y'all to think about it. I said, your dad might not be around, but is there a man in your community that you often look to for a direction? Was there some time, sometimes where there's somebody, a male figure in your life who you look to as an example of what not to do? Hmm. <laughs> and then folks are like... Actually, yeah, yeah, there is. It's like, exactly. So you all had a male figure in your life. They either they were either a positive example of what to do or an example of what not to do. But you always had a male figure in your life. I mean, if you want to get technical about it, anybody who is, is well-versed or involved in early childhood development will tell you that the best chance of any of our children have and reaching all their early childhood milestones is, have to, is how to have is to have both parents actively involved. It's not saying they have to be together in a relationship or anything. It just says they're actively involved. Can it be done without both parents there? Absolutely. There was even a study done that shows that how children how they learn differently from their fathers versus their mothers. With their fathers, they learn better by direction, and their mothers, it's more about repetition. And so I always seek to. Anytime I hear this narrative being parroted about black men not being there or not needing a father, I'm quick to jump on that and ask folks, "Okay, well, where's your evidence? Where's your data? You know, what 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 proof do you have of this? Because I have plenty that shows otherwise."
1: Mm. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as you talk about father figures, I feel like, you know, there's parallels there for mother figures. Uh, the same thing is is true. Um, I want to thank you so much for uh, giving us more insight and, and depth to um, how we've arrived at some of these uh, disparities in early childhood development, as well as in birthing. And for sharing with us not only what you're doing, but what our community can collectively do um, to to heal and um, to to have better holistic outcomes. What we do on this show uh, each week when we check in with community, we like to also center the individual and, and ask them, you know, outside of the work that you're doing, William, how are you being you in this moment?
2: Well, the way I'm me, like I am, a, I always tell people I'm a lifelong learner for one. I actually love my work. <laughs> and so, one of the advantages I have is um, my work allows me to be me too, right? So, if I enjoy what I'm doing every day, is it really work? And then, if part of me of being a human being and being, a, a, a being a my true, authentic self is about giving back and helping my community, and I'm able to do that through my work. But there is an importance in having a, a work life balance. And so, outside of work, I find new ways. I'm always finding new, you know, new ways to learn both about things about the outside world, but also about myself. Right. And so, I'm a uh, I'm a somebody who regularly practices yoga. Um, I regularly practice uh, a Japanese sword martial art card, iaido, which I look at is the exact opposite of yoga. It's very much more rigid. It's very artistic, like yoga, very calming and relaxing, but it's much more uh, prescriptive and rigid. Uh, and I like it because it appeals to that very uh, disciplined side of myself. I'm an avid cyclist. You know, I lift weights uh, four or five times a week. And I'm always reading books um, and engaging with, you know, engaging with different people. If I learn about something uh, on TV or through the news that I find interesting, I embark on these little research projects on my own that may take me one to two months. Uh, so I always, you know, I, I I always say, I think it's funny that if I was ever in a position where um, I've been decided to go back to college, you know, it, I wouldn't miss a beat because I still kind of do these little research projects on my own anyway. But those are ways in which I fill my cup. I'm, you know, I make sure that I try to keep a healthy work life balance uh, and feed my strengths, but also pay attention to my weaknesses um, as a man and as a male. Uh, like so many other men, we've been kind of conditioned and taught uh, that the only emotions that we should show that of anger or aggressiveness or happiness uh, and so one of the things that yoga, but also this birth work helped me to do over the past three to four years is learn how to be more vulnerable first with myself before I can be more vulnerable with other people in my family, right? And so I've also been this journey, been in this journey over the past three to four years of really like experimenting with my, my feelings instead of pushing feelings away when I, when I read something or I watch something that maybe elicits fear or anxiousness. Or even sadness or sorrow or whatever. Instead of pushing that away and saying like, well, "Men ain't supposed to feel that," uh, I feel it. I feel the feels, right? Uh, I once heard somewhere uh, on a, on a podcast uh, that human emotions or feelings actually only last ninety seconds. It's our brains holding on to the uh, the moment or the stimuli that made us feel that certain emotion that makes them last longer, right? So our brains hold on to that image. Or that situation. And so it's, it makes our feelings last longer. And I never forgot that. And so I allow myself to feel my feelings, no matter how uncomfortable they are, uh, and process them, and just not to allow myself to get stuck in that to the point where I'm paralyzed. Uh, and that's been a very interesting uh, but fruitful experiment, experience, and journey for me. Uh, but I think it's helped me to become a much more whole person. It's helped me to be much more effective in my work. Um, and it's allowed me to be a much more happy a, a happier person as well, right? Because as somebody, as I said, is a lifelong learner, um, what's going to make me happy is to learn more, right? What 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 better experience can you have than to be learning more, more about the different layers of your own self as a human being?
0: How I'm being me right now um is, you know, as as a new pastor. <laughs> Um, I'm, you know, it's getting to the point of being involved in individual lives, and um, one of the things that we underestimate is how much just hearing a positive message or engaging with folks matters in the long run. Sometimes we take those engagements for granted. Um, being in a position where, where you know, you're teed up for folks to engage with you in that way um, has allowed me to, to be able to see the direct impact of that, um, in ways that I hadn't before. And so how I'm being me right now is just being in a space of listening. It's, it's amazing how many, how many folks just need a voice to just hear what's happening and think things through and process things through, and then to keep going and then to add and bring in and invite positivity, um, you know, in this case, prayer, um, you know, and godly prayer in this, in this, in this example. Um, and so that's that's allowing me to 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 see things in a different way, especially in an area, y'all. I got to tell you, you we know, we've seen and heard the data around the opioid epidemic,
1: mm-hmm. but in this
0: Duluth area, to see it yeah. on the faces of folks outside yeah. of your community—I mean, the faces have completely changed, even though the epidemic hasn't. And it's been a really big eye-opener into just our universal need to each other, to the point where where um, even the lake, the beauty of the lake itself takes on a new meaning when you have just seen somebody in the midst of a of, of a full-on um uh kind of drug-induced psychosis in the street, having to deal with that just there. And it's not and it's a and it's a white person who's who's who I'm seeing going through this in ways we're growing up. All I saw was people in our community. And so there's just has been this really interesting space.
1: Yeah. Well, I think for me this week, it's a hard question um, for me to answer this week because there's so many different uh, things as the year is coming to an end and we're approaching the holidays. I have uh, big projects that are are wrapping up and trying to figure out what's next. And uh, it's, it's a hard decision to ask, and so doing a lot of internal uh, reflecting and reaching out to mentors and advisors for counsel, and just you know, kind of reflecting on where I've been and and where I want to be, um, and, and what are the next steps to get there. But also, you know, being in this space where you know we are up against so many um, disparities, and you know, I was so hopeful a year and a half ago that. Things were going to change. And I mean, it just feels like it hasn't. And and we're preparing for the the trial. You know, I know my work is going to be picking up through the trial. And so we're on this pursuit again for... Justice for Dante Wright and his family, uh, but their uncertainty, right? The uncertainty of what's in the future, the uncertainty of what that verdict will be, you know, it's just it feels like um, there's so much that's up in the air right now. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to lean in, I think, more to my family and to stay grounded um, as I, I navigate all of these moving parts.
0: Brother Moore, I want to thank you so much for, for blessing us just not just with this this wisdom jewels, but also a very clear and specific example of how we can take care of us and and not be be not succumb solely to the packaging that's been given back to us about us that's not for us. And so I thank you so much for being able to do that. And I definitely see uh the Thanos throne picture behind you um, gotcha, <laughs> as a marker. Um so so just 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 kinship all the way there. Um Thank you so much, Brother Moore, for being with us today on Bearing Witness. I'm going to kick it back to Ms. Georgia to, to, to close us out for this segment.
1: In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. Bearing Witness with Anthony in Georgia is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with KMLJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.